ample time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child. They would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, Oh, no, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts until the day of his manifestation to Israel. Let's pray together. Lord, the occasion of this circumcision was a great occasion, made greater, Lord, by the sense of your presence and the filling of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that as we look back some 2,000 years ago, Lord, and see what happened that day, it would find its meaning and relevance in our life today, and that we would know that here in this place, during this service, as it were, this ceremony, you are speaking to us, Lord, and with us about great mercies, about wonderful rejoicings, about your plan and purpose unfolding before our lives as well. Lord, each of us has brought into this place a need or needs. Those of us who are believers, Lord, want to have the experience of casting our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us. We want to leave refreshed and lifted up. Lord, if there are those here who are not yet born again, they haven't come to know your son Jesus as their Savior, and I pray, Lord, that today would be the acceptable time for them that the Holy Spirit's conviction in their hearts would lead them to the grace and knowledge of Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. The occasion of a circumcision was regarded as a festive event for the entire Jewish community. There were certain customs that were part of the ceremony of circumcision. Let me go through some of them. First, godparents would be chosen. 
As the ceremony itself began, the godmother would carry the eight-day-old infant from his mother's room to the room in which the circumcision would take place and give him to the child's father. The father handed him to the person trained to perform circumcisions, called the moil. The moil placed the child upon a chair and proclaimed, this is the chair of Elijah. May he be remembered for good. He then lifted up the child and placed him upon a cushion in the lap of the godfather, and after reciting appropriate blessings, the procedure was performed. The father also recited a blessing to God, saying, God has sanctified us by his commandments and commanded us to enter our sons into the covenant of Abraham. The moil then recited a prayer in the course of which a name was bestowed upon the child. Special hymns were sung and blessings upon the parents, the child, as well as for the coming of the Messiah. Now, all or some of these customs had been performed over and over again in Jewish households for thousands of years every time a baby boy was circumcised. Nothing extraordinary ever happened that we know of until Zacharias and Elizabeth presented their baby boy to be circumcised. All of a sudden, the customs that had been observed for centuries took on their real significance. There on what the Jews called the chair of Elijah was the baby who fulfilled its symbolism whom the angel Gabriel had described as coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then instead of reciting the usual blessing for the coming of the Messiah that would have been memorized, Zechariah's tongue was loosed and he said something unusual and unlike any previous blessing ever spoken at a circumcision. He spoke prophetically to let the people know that the coming of the Messiah was imminent and it would be in their own lifetime and that that child being circumcised would be the one who would be the one to announce it. Never had there been such a circumcision ceremony. It's an understatement to say that fear came upon the people. They all marveled, it says, at what had occurred, and they discussed the events throughout all the hill country of Judea. This was big front page news in that little town, not on the religion page anymore. It had moved to the front page, and people were talking. Now, let's think about ourselves for a moment. Churches and I mean all churches, have certain customs and ceremonies. Even those who are trying to become more contemporary do so by instituting new customs and ceremonies. We want people to go away fearing God, marveling and discussing the things that occurred with their family and friends. We want to make an impact on people's lives. Now, we can learn something about the power or the powerlessness of our customs as we search through these verses. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, church customs lose their power when you follow them to the letter. And number two, church customs lose their power when you are filled with the Spirit. Let's take a look first in verses 57 through 63, where we'll learn that church customs lose their power when you follow them to the letter. The family and friends of Zacharias and Elizabeth should have been anticipating something very special at the circumcision ceremony of their son. First of all, the angel Gabriel had appeared to Zacharias to announce his birth. A silence of 400 years was broken 
God had last spoken through Malachi, and then for 400 years there had been no prophetic word until now Gabriel appeared on the scene. Elizabeth had been barren and was past the age at which she could expect to become pregnant, and yet pregnant she had become just as the angel predicted. Zecharias, for his disbelief, had been struck deaf and dumb and had not uttered a word for the past nine months. Extraordinary circumstances. Nevertheless, we will see that the people gathered together for the circumcision ceremony were crippled by their customs. When Elizabeth suggested a name that was a little out of the ordinary for this extraordinary child, everyone immediately protested on the basis of their usual custom. Verse 57, now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, well, they rejoiced with her. Elizabeth's pregnancy and delivery are rightly called a great mercy. But I'd like to introduce you to a phrase credited to C.S. Lewis. He spoke of mercies as severe mercies in some cases. Elizabeth provides a good example. It says here that her neighbors and relatives rejoiced with her, but that had not always been the case. If you were with us for our previous studies, you know. Her whole life she had been barren. This was a reproach almost unbearable among Jewish women. Year after year to go childless. She would be openly or secretly reproached by her relatives and friends. When Elizabeth walked by, the phone would ring. (laughs) And they would text message one another and say, here comes that barren woman. You might as well answer it. I know who you are. (laughs) Or not. You know, my phone has the Godfather theme on it, and when it goes off, when it goes off, I think, who's playing the Godfather theme? Anyway, you're going to have some severe mercy in your life here in just a minute. But anyway, uh, so there she was, and, and, you know, they would talk about her, and it was a reproach for a Jewish woman to be childless. They believed that, well, children are a heritage from the Lord. They're a blessing from God, but they believed that if you were childless, it was a judgment from God. There was something wrong with you, and I don't mean physically. It was a spiritual, uh, you know, judgment from God upon you or your family. And, and add to that... Yes, it was joyous that Elizabeth was pregnant, and she was rejoicing. But having a baby and raising a child when she was far past the age for doing such things, in a culture that was pretty backwards in terms of its technology and its helps, this was also going to be a very difficult procedure. You know, when she changed diapers, it wasn't pampers. Uh, and all of these other modern things, you know, we need to have a reality check when we talk about how difficult it is, you know, raising children when we consider the advances that we have. And so, taken all in all, yes, this was a great mercy in her life, but it had been a lifetime of severe mercy for her, bringing her to this point. Some of us have experienced or will experience severe mercies 
Yes, God is merciful. Uh, maybe it's to keep us from making a mistake or to take someone home that we wish could have been healed. Or There's a, a lot of different ways of looking at it. And we can praise God for His mercy, but sometimes His mercies can seem severe because they come with a cost. Nevertheless, He is worthy to be praised because He is God forever. Verse 59, so it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and that means they had this, this party, this festival, this event, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. Circumcision on the eighth day goes back to God's covenant with Abraham. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 17 and elsewhere. It was designated as a sign in the flesh of Hebrew males signifying a special covenant relationship with God. It was the outward sign of the covenant God made with Abraham. Even in the Old Testament, the outward custom always spoke of an inward reality, the circumcision of the heart, the cutting away of your old fleshly nature so that you could enjoy a spiritual relationship with God. As a ritual, circumcision was useless without the accompanying relationship with God. And this is always true. God is not interested in the outward ritual in and of itself. He is interested in it in terms of what it speaks about the inward reality. Spoke to you this morning earlier about the coming baptism. Baptism is the outward expression of the inward reality that a person has come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. As Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose from the dead, so the waters of baptism symbolize death and burial and resurrection to new life. And so a person who comes to know Christ has a personal relationship with Jesus confessing their sins and accepting Him as Savior, follows that with water baptism to give a testimony of the inward reality. Yet over the years, churches turn that around, and they make baptism key, uh, and, and there are those who believe that you're even saved through baptism, that it is the outward ritual that saves you, or that is absolutely necessary for you to be saved, and they miss the inward reality of the thing. And so even in the Old Testament, we're looking at circumcision as the inward reality of the heart, uh, the flesh cut away so that we can enjoy a relationship with God. Now, baby boys weren't officially named until the circumcision ceremony. Everyone assumed Elizabeth's extraordinary baby would be having the ordinary name of his father. It was their custom. The text says they would have called him by the name of the Father. A more literal translation is they were calling, uh, they were for calling him Zacharias. And it indicates strongly that some were perhaps already calling him Zacharias. They were assuming it would be his name. You know how this is, your old relatives who come over and are a little bit rude and, and they just start taking over and doing things that you don't want them to do even though you've told them a million times. And they come in, oh, where's little Zach? I want to see little Zach. And, uh, of course, you know, Elizabeth's thinking, no, his name is John. Oh, right, honey, that's, yes, uh-huh, you think that all you want. But, oh, there's little Zacharias, so oh, you little cute thing, and, you know, all of that kind of a thing. That's what was going on. And so there was a lot of pressure in that house to call him Zacharias. Family and friends can be awfully pushy and forward when it comes to ceremonies and customs. Anybody who ever has had a wedding knows this. I've had the privilege over the years of officiating at many wedding ceremonies 
and it is a privilege every time. Uh, and I've seen some really blushing brides, but uh, more often than that, I've experienced the weeping bride syndrome as some relative from somebody's side of the family comes out of the woodwork to absolutely destroy the ceremony because of some song they want to sing or some poem they want read or some special relative that they want recognized in the middle of the ceremony or some Uncle Fred who, you know, nobody wants there or whatever it might be. I mean, there's, there's arguments now over where people are going to sit and when they're going to be seated. And, and, and more than one couple, about 10 minutes into planning their wedding, thinks they should have eloped. Uh, and, and just told everybody about it, but that carries its own baggage with it. You know, then you're cut out of the will and you're disowned, you know. And so, so I mean, it's, this is the way families are. Uh, and and uh, they don't have to be that way, but they quite frequently are that way. Uh, and so nothing new, nothing old. This is, this is the kind of pressure and situation that Elizabeth found herself in. And Zacharias, he's probably a little oblivious to some of this because after all, he's deaf and dumb. Uh, you know, which is uh, the state of most of your husbands when, when something important is going on, you know. Uh, and we're not physically deaf and dumb, but there is a kind of a emotional deafness and dumbness that takes place, especially if there are sports on television. And, you know, things are happening in the kitchen that, you know, people are stabbing each other with paring knives and stuff. And, Honey, could you get involved with it? What? Pardon me? And so it's very similar to what happens even today. And so his mother answered and said, verse 60, no, 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 he shall be called John. But they said to her, there's nobody among your relatives who's called by that name. How rude. Who are they to name her child? It's like living in Hanford, isn't it? (laughs) Isn't it like living in Hanford where everybody knows your business? You know, I'm going to admit to you, I got a new car. But you knew I had a new car before. A guy drove, I got a phone call the other day, and, and this guy I know, he says, hey, did you get a new car? I go, yeah. He goes, yeah, I was just driving by, and I thought, oh, Gene's trying to trick me by, you know, his car's not there. He must have got a new car. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Everywhere I go. Did you get a new car? Yeah, I got a new car. It's a 2004 Malibu. It's a decent car. It's not too upscale. It's not too downscale. It's just, it's just there. You know, I'm a creature of habit. I had a Malibu. I've got another Malibu. But everybody knows it. <laughs> and probably if I had a foreign car, they'd have an opinion about it. You know, I mean, that, that's just, and I don't mind that. I love living in a small town because I have opinions about you. And I'm watching you. And before you knew I had the new car, we went out on a stealth mission and just drove around to see what was happening at your house. But anyway, I only have a short window of time before somebody sees me in the car to, to spy on you. But anyway, and so they're giving her their, more than their input. They're saying, oh, no, his name is going to be Zacharias. Parents had been naming their firstborn sons after the father or at least another close relative for centuries. And so it's kind of like, well, okay, if you're not going to name him Zacharias, pick a name from one of your other relatives, but he is not going to be called John. We don't care that this is the most extraordinary birth that we have ever witnessed. Who's this Gabriel you're talking about? His name will be Zacharias. It's the way things were done. And see, that is the problem posed by ceremonies 
and customs. The custom is not bad. The ceremony is not bad in and of itself. But just because we've always done it a certain way, we have a tendency to think that it's right and that there's something spiritual about it. This is the way we've always done it, and this is the way it always will be done. Now, the partiers at the circumcision decided to go over Elizabeth's head. And so they made signs to his father what he would have called him. They didn't use American sign language. Why not? No America. Uh, (laughs) Hebrew sign language, HSL it's called. And (laughs) it's an ancient sign language that's going to be discovered one day, and you'll see that I was right. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote saying, his name is John. So they all marveled. Now, Zacharias, as I've said several times, he'd been deaf and dumb since his talk with the angel Gabriel, since he got Gabriel upset with him. And so the crowd signed to him, and then they waited for him to put the child's name into writing. And I, you know, I'm kind of reading into this, but I can see them with their arms folded looking at Elizabeth, knowing that when they looked back at Zacharias, he would have scratched out his own name on that tablet Uh, And so they're just waiting for this to happen. All Zacharias had to do to kill that whole ceremony was write what everyone expected, to write his own name. And all the power and symbolism would have been for nothing. To his spiritual credit, Zacharias went against custom and wrote down John in obedience to what he had been told nine months earlier. Churches can kill their ceremonies and services by appealing to letters that are written down somewhere decades or sometimes centuries earlier. Just because something worked in the past and we've been doing it for dozens or decades doesn't mean it must continue. Our customs and traditions can lose their power. Churches recognize the problem, but they don't always realize the solution. For a solution, they usually try to become more contemporary. They try one of two things. Either they try adding a contemporary service in addition to their customary service, or they simply borrow contemporary ideas from the surrounding secular culture and they tack them onto their customary service. Now, rather than spending time explaining why neither of those approaches works, let me just tell you the real solution. You are the solution. And what I mean by that is that you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not what's happening around you. It's not the custom or the ceremony, whether it's old or new. It's what's going on within you that can loose God's power in and through the church. Now, I've been to a lot of church services over the years in the United States, overseas, all the way from ultra-conservative to fantastically Pentecostal. Uh, I, I can't say I've seen it all, but I've seen a lot of different things. And, and one of the things that uh, has stuck with me more than anything else over the, the years I've been a Christian were some services I attended where Dr. Alan Redpath was delivering the message. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Alan Redpath. He was an uh, English gentleman Love the Lord, a former pastor of Moody Church in uh, Chicago. He's written some books, mostly out of print now, sadly. 
I got the privilege of meeting him and exchanging a correspondence with him. Alan Redpath, old uh, Christian gentleman from England, and uh, he came in to a Calvary Chapel uh, uh, service that we were having, a pastor's conference, where he was the keynote speaker. And um, he was really very traditional, very customary, you would say. He had a way of doing things that worked for him that was more like going to the Church of England, it seemed like. You know? So he would come out, and he would have an introductory comment. Every time, do the same thing, introductory comment, and then he would pray, and then he would sing a hymn, one of the old hymns that you know, uh, we argue about. And, uh, and then he would have some more comments and another prayer, and then he would sing a worship chorus. Now, you have to understand, he couldn't sing at all. I mean, it was terrible, nasal English singing. I mean, it was horrible. I can't even sound that bad. If I try, you'd have to, maybe if Gene came up and punched me in the stomach while I was singing. But, and then he would read the Scripture, and he would always say, this is the Word of the Lord as if you didn't know. And then he would pray again. And this is like a half hour into it, and then he would have his message. I remember just about everything he said the whole time he was in that podium, in that pulpit. Because it was old, and I was used to contemporary, or or, no, because he was filled with God's Holy Spirit. He'd walked with the Lord so many years, you could tell, you felt like you were intruding into some kind of a holy conversation that he was having with Jesus Christ. And that is the key. It, did, it didn't matter. We could have been outdoors, indoors, could have been at uh, Calvary Chapel, we could have been at a Pentecostal church. He could have played a washboard for worship. Nothing would have mattered except that he was filled with God's Spirit. It is not what's going on around you, it's what's going on within you that looses God's power in and through the church. And contrary, if you attend a service, it, you know, you can get blessed in almost any kind of a service provided you are filled with God's Spirit and are attenuated to the things that the Spirit is doing in that service. And so in verses 64 through 80, churches, uh, church customs loose their power when you are filled with the Spirit. Zechariah's obedience loosed his tongue, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The combination of his obedience and God's filling transformed the customary ceremony of circumcision into an empowered moment that no one would ever forget. Verse 64, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, what kind of a child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. The reaction to Zacharias' obedience and God's filling was reverential fear and awe, ongoing spiritual dialogue and discussion, and personal meditation on the plan and purposes of God. Their reaction was the reaction you would hope to get from every church service every time. Just because something is customary doesn't make it wrong. Just because it is more contemporary doesn't make it right. You don't simply upgrade the program and think you've accomplished something. It's not the outward ritual that is ultimately the focus. It's the inward relationship, your personal relationship with God. It's just like circumcision itself, just like the ceremony that was taking place. It wasn't the cutting away of the flesh of the foreskin. It's the cutting away of the flesh of the heart so that we are tender-hearted 
and open to God. Now, the presence and fullness of the Holy Spirit is not accomplished by changing the program. It is accomplished before the service ever begins in your time with the Lord. And then regardless the particular liturgy or form of worship, you can express the presence and power of God you've already experienced. Zechariah sang an inspired hymn that was filled with prophecy. It was also filled with the Old Testament. There are at least 33 references to Old Testament verses. And it's a good example for us that what is old from our perspective can still have meaning and power. The Song of Zechariah is called the Benedictus, and it breaks into three themes. First, he sang about the covenant God had made with David. Verse 67, now his father Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, saying, blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. King David lived in a great palace. From its windows, he looked out one day upon the tabernacle within which the glory of God dwelt, and it dawned on him that God was living in a tent, the same tent that they had erected in the wilderness, and he had this beautiful palace, and so he had it on his heart to build God a temple. And God said to him, David, come on, where is the house that you would build for me? Who could build a temple that would hold God in His presence? But in typical gracious fashion, God said, you want to build me a temple and that's good, but I'm going to be gracious and build you a house. And He began to talk to him about building a spiritual house, a spiritual lineage, and He promised him that His greater Son would one day and forever sit on the throne. Now, next, Zacharias sang about God's covenant with Abraham in verse 72. He says, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father, Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. God promised Abraham he would make of him a great nation. There would be a people as numerous as the stars of the heavens and the sand on the seashore. Israel is that people who would be reestablished in their land to bless all the nations of the earth in the yet future time the Bible describes as a millennial kingdom. Now, Zechariah's last theme brought all of this together. The son promised to King David who would fulfill all God promised Abraham was to be introduced in their lifetime by that baby boy, his son, who was being circumcised. And so he said in verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zacharias quoted from the Old Testament prophet Malachi. In the closing verses of Malachi, you read about the prophet Elijah coming to prepare God's people to receive their Savior. He is called the day spring from on high because his coming would bring light, spiritual light, to those sitting in the spiritual darkness of this world. The Jews were really into Elijah. He was a hero figure to them. If they made movies, they would have made them about Elijah. Uh, if they wore T-shirts, 
they would have been Elijah t-shirts. You know what I mean? If they had bobbleheads on their, they would have Elijah bobbleheads. And so they really liked Elijah. At their Passover meals, a place for Elijah was always set and a door left open in case he wanted to stop by and eat with them. Jews sang of Elijah at the end of their Sabbath, singing, and I quote, Come speedily in our days, along with the Messiah, the Son of David, to redeem us. And as I mentioned earlier, the chair upon which the eight-day-old infant was placed just before he was circumcised was called the chair of Elijah. Now, Elijah got connected with circumcision because of a sentence in his prayer in 1 Kings 19 where he said, Lord, the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. The rabbis understood him to mean that the Israelites had abandoned the covenant of circumcision. Now, we don't know if that's true or not, but that was their understanding. And as a result, they added this ritual to Elijah to their circumcision ceremony where they had a little chair where Elijah was the welcomed guest that they would put the baby on temporarily and pronounce a blessing to Elijah. Now, think about all this. Think of this custom and tradition, which is really kind of not, you know, not too many of us are Jewish or have that heritage, right? I mean, you know, most of your babies are circumcised in the hospital. Uh, you don't get to witness it. It's not a ceremony. It's a medical procedure, uh, you know, and, and so you've got to get up to speed here on this Jewish custom and realize that for centuries they'd been putting this baby in the chair of Elijah, okay? The Jews expecting Elijah to come mouthing these words, then all of a sudden the angel Gabriel appears and says to Zechariah, your son is coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, just like Malachi said. And then later Jesus would say of John, you know, if you will receive it, John is Elijah who is to come. And so this is fantastic. We lose the the understanding of it because we think in our own terms, but For a Jew, they would immediately understand the significance of this symbolism. And so in verse 80, the child grew and became strong in spirit. He was in deserts until the day of his manifestation to Israel. We learned earlier in chapter 1 that John was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Remember, he got all Pentecostal when Mary came to visit Elizabeth, and he started leaping in the womb. Bless God! And uh, I don't know if he said that or not, but anyway... My interpretation, just kind of like the Hebrew language thing, but let's get back into this. Hopefully, a phone will go off and I'll be saved. <laughs> he never took a sip of alcohol. Now, it's, it's not, you know, we could talk about drinking, but the idea is that he didn't come under the influence of, of alcohol. And I think we can uh, expand that to say that he didn't really want any influence in his life other than that which was godly. And so maybe we're sitting here thinking, well, I don't drink at all, so I'm cool on that, or I don't drink that much, I'm a social drinker, or, or whatever. But it's more than that. It's the idea of what influences us. And, and as I've told you many times in the past, we're very easily influenced. Otherwise, there wouldn't be an advertising industry. If people were just rock solid on what car they were going to drive and, and what brand of clothing they were going to wear and all of these things, there wouldn't be a need for advertising because it would all fall on deaf ears. And as it is, there's a great uh, industry. 
And, and so we're all easily influenced. And so the idea here is to identify the kinds of things that really influence you and to make sure that they're not at cross purposes with God so that we're only always influenced in a way that is godly. And then he grew and became strong in spirit by living out in the desert. Now, that's not to say that we have to go and pitch a tent out in the desert, eat locusts and dip them in honey like we'll see him doing later on. Uh, But it is to say that there should be a separation from the things of the world, that we should live simple lives. Well, basically, here's here's what we're being told. Filled with the Spirit, living a disciplined life focused on God, separated from the things of the world, living simply, and spending significant time alone with God. That's the profile of a person who wants to loose God's power through their life. Such a person doesn't really think about whether they're customary or contemporary. Those are only outward forms. They think of Christ and what would exalt and honor Him. And if you want to analyze what they're doing and say, oh, that's a little bit too customary, oh, that's quite contemporary, it's irrelevant to them because they've spent time alone with God and they know that what they're doing is exalting Him, that it's all about Jesus Christ. Outward forms of worship come and go. They change. Some are okay. Some are whacked out. I mean, there's a lot of crazy, weird things that churches try to do just to attract people in. It becomes more entertainment than anything else. You know, so there's both ends of that spectrum. Yes, there are some really dead customs. If you ask people, why are you still doing that? I don't know. It's what we've always done. They haven't reconsidered or reconstructed them in centuries. But the answer isn't to just see what the world is doing and to put, you know, video monitors on the back of every chair, you know, so that you can surf the internet while I'm talking and have stream. Hey, we can have streaming video while you're talking. I can hear you on the internet. Well, how about you just listen to me? Oh, yeah, but this is so cool. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of crazy things that people are doing. None of that really matters. Forms come and go. You know, as far as being contemporary, you know what's contemporary? It's contemporary to you because that's what you do. You know, a lot of people say, oh, Calvary Chapel, you know, you have contemporary worship. Uh, that's because when I was saved, uh, that's the kind of music that, I, that we liked. And, and that's what God was doing in that culture at the time. And, and so, you know, you, you can't have a contemporary service by taking your tie off. And I've seen that before. We, we were in Catalina one time. Uh, at an Avalon on vacation, and we were at. Uh, we wanted to go to church, and there was a church that had a, con- a customary or, or a uh, traditional service and a contemporary service. And what happened? We kind of had, you know, occasion to be in both services. The only difference between the one and the other was that the pastor put on a Hawaiian shirt for the second one. <laughs> and so the first service, he was all dressed up with a tie and everything, and then the second service, he had a Hawaiian shirt on. And and I praise the Lord, you know. Uh, I mean, there's no big deal, but that is, it's not that, oh, wow, the pastor has blue jeans on, or oh, he's wearing a tie, you know, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the inward reality. Every custom, every ceremony can speak to people to the extent that you are obedient and filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not a matter of rejecting custom because it's old and worn out, or respecting what is contemporary simply because it's new and wild. 
It's a matter of personal consecration. It's never the program that God is interested in. It's always the person and the people. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that uh, these things come to us in a simple way. And Lord, how easily we get off track and get things off kilter, Lord, by, uh, you know, with the right desire, with a right heart, wanting people to be going away in fear and reverence, Lord, and talking about things, but we don't want them to be talking about the ceremony or the service. We want them to be talking about Jesus. And so, Lord, in order for that to happen, we have to be filled with Jesus before we ever come. And, Lord, if we are, and if we're seeking your Son and filled with your Spirit, then the things that you lead us to do, whether they be customary or contemporary, they too will be filled with a sense of your presence and people will be ministered to. And so I pray for us as a congregation, Lord, that we don't get stuck in the past, that we don't uh, revere the present, but that we just lift up the person of Jesus Christ and that in this place many would come to grow strong in their relationship with you and many others would come to know you. We pray these things this morning in Jesus' name and everyone who agreed said amen.